Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event originally occurred at the AWP conference in Washington, D.C. on February 4, 2011. The recording features Juno Diaz. The views and opinions expressed in the following recording are those of the presenter and in no way reflect the views and opinions of AWP. This is the time when we're, we're all of us together. Uh, most of you are in the middle of your books. Yeah? A few of you have actually finished the damn things. and You're either full of enormous self-loathing or you're utterly convinced this is the shit. Yeah? So it's a strange project, the business we're in, uh, the business of narrative, uh, this tremendous faith that we have. Um, a faith that I think rarely gets talked about. Uh, we spend most of our times in workshops and think we rarely address the, the tremendous faith it requires for someone to uh, write a piece of art, a book of poetry, a book of essays, a memoir, a book of stories, a novel in a culture such as ours. Yeah. It's a remarkable, remarkable act of faith. Uh, most of us, of course, uh, write against all odds and with often little hope that there's going to be the sort of reception that your art and your dedication deserves, and yet we push on anyway. It's the most remarkable thing we do, and this is more than any of the shit we've written, more than who the hell is getting published and who the hell has an agent and who the hell is in this program and who the hell got this fellowship. I think that this is perhaps the most important thing about who we are and what brings us together here is this deep, deep elemental belief in what we do and that thing that we do, the books that we're writing, that they will find a place not only in the culture but in the future. You young writers reach your hand out into the dark, you know, with your books because you believe that somewhere there is somebody in the future out there who's going to reach their hand back to you, to your work. And it's really a remarkable thing, you know. It's really the greatest thing, I think, about what we do. There ain't no fucking loot in it. Yeah? And unless you're like 1%, there ain't no fucking respect. So the tremendous beauty of this faith is uh, often recompense enough. Yeah? Or I should say probably the only fucking recompense. So I guess I um, wanted to also say is our folks from uh, Cavecanum here? I fucking love Cavecanum. It's always good to see you guys, man. Every year. You didn't I wish y'all would have warned me this shit was, like, super, super white. Like, that's, that's actually some shit I will hold against Cavacanum, despite loving y'all. Yeah. Hmm. I had my suspicion. Then I rolled into AWP, and I was like, fuck Boston white. Y'all motherfuckers AWP white, you know? So... You know, we'll improve. Yeah, we will improve. We will do much better yeah, with each year. Uh, we fucking hope. And for the rest of us in the battle, Cavecano, Magondo, um, we just keep swinging. 
Yeah. And I guess I've wasted enough time. I only have two small pieces to read, so I thought I would like talk a lot of shit. <laughs> and then we'll call it a wrap. There's no way that you can read well in a stage like this, so you might as well just palaver it away. And I guess I always ask this because it's sort of important to me. Like, how many folks are from my beloved home state of New Jersey? <laughs> New Jersey literature, we pray for you. Yeah. <laughs> We pray. Okay. How many folks are Latino here? Yeah, my beloved African diaspora. Everyone here? They seem a little confused. They're like, oh, oh shit. Why might that be? Okay. I'm trying to cover all my identity bases. How about, is there any Dominicans here? You know, guys, Jersey just has it all beat. What the fuck happened, man? I never expected it. Say again? Oh, of course. How's my, my neighboring brethren and sister in Haiti? Yes. See, I knew Haiti would rock it. They're like, fuck, how did you know I was part Italian? I'm not. So, in fact, I did not forget. <laughs> but thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And someone shouted out, Vona. Where's Vona? Good to see you guys. Fucking, we, we have to read so much because of you guys. So, two things. One, very much undone. This is the stage of a story where you've got the basic nuts and bolts done, but you haven't applied the actual talent to it. Yeah. <laughs> You all know when you're at that place where you're like, it works, but it ain't fucking cute, you know? <laughs> it's like the, this is the kind of literary, kind of a, this is the literary equivalence of the Snuggie. You'll wear that shit, but you ain't fucking rolling AWP with it, so. And so here's the Snuggie, yeah? Um... Uh, it's only about five pages, and uh, it's a story. It's actually a letter. It's kind of a stupid letter. It's just a, a, it doesn't work as a conceit, but it's a letter that uh, my sort of nonstop, constant alter ego, Junior, is writing to his, uh, his cousin. Um, he has a cousin who tries to get into the country and gets deported three times. So he sort of writes this letter, and this is only a fragment of the letter, so... We'll see. And again, it ain't great, but you start by making it just work, right? So it's just called Primo, all right? And it starts with the second time he tries to get into the country, yeah? Uh, Primo. The second time you went at it reluctantly, you didn't believe it was going to happen. You didn't have faith, and if you don't have faith... It is never going to happen. Instead of going with the guy, you didn't have faith, and if you don't have faith, it will never work no matter what. Instead of going with the guy we found, you listened to some worthless friend of yours who claimed he knew how to get a visa cheap, a professional one, bien bueno, and so you made a down payment and you waited for the friend to deliver. Primo, you could wait like nobody's business. 
You waited and you waited. And finally it came through, but it was a ridiculous thing. Like I had made it myself with a crayon. So you walked out on that deal. You didn't even try it. Who wanted that humiliation again? And the window closed for a time in your heart as well as in the world. You decided it was a foolish dream, this dream of Nueva York. So you bought a used white Civic with the rest of the money and you focused on trying to be slick. Slick is a full-time occupation in Santo Domingo. It really is. You flew all over the capital in your Civic, having a great life and selling to the old school friends here and there. You flew and you flew and you flew. You could have had another machete if you'd been more gangster about the dealing, but your sorry ass actually managed to lose money dealing to the hijos de mami y papi. Seriously, primo, how could you lose money to them? How in the world is that even possible? I wanted to be everyone's friend. I was easy. Those were good times and you slept half your days away, and you knew all the owners at all the clubs were the only spot of dark they let in there. And best of all, you were bawling girls no one in Villa Juana could ever have imagined touching. Girls with milk skin and green eyes, girls with hair so straight it could make a black girl ache at 100 meters. You got them high, you danced them up, then you took them to the moteles in their own car. These weren't the good girls who would be pussy virgins until they got a ring. No, these were the messed up girls with the divorced fathers and the ex-beauty queen moms who had been raped or beaten or locked into their houses for most of their childhood by their general fathers. The messed up girls whose families were Cuban, Italian, Catalan, Lebanese, who drank like Policia Cobral, who had loud, hoarse voices, the ones who danced against you like they were in a cabaret, and who you blew up for free. These were the girls who wanted to leave Santo Domingo, and you shared, with that, you shared that with them at least. Malas or not, they acted the same when you entered the motel, like it was their first time, and that gesture at innocence always touching you deeply. Good times all around. But then some hevel whose girlfriend you had been fucking in the ass did you in. Instead of confronting you, he told the father, a colonel in the policia, about the narco haitiano who was fucking his sweet, innocent daughter in the ass, and they grabbed you at a club with two little baggies in your pocket, and that was it for the so-called life. Six weeks they held you. My mother moved back to Santo Domingo to take care of it, to get you out. Prison in the DR, of course, beyond terrible. Filth 24-7. You almost went crazy in there. Each time mommy visited, you begged her to get you out. You had lice and rashes and a sty in your eye the size of a hazelnut. Your second week, three cons threatened to kill you over some stupid slight, so mommy had to pay for two other convicts to watch over you with knives while you slept and bathed and ate. 
At night, while the lunatics sang old bachatas and the guards wheedled a screaming man's face on the concrete floor of a cell, you tried to keep it together by thinking of New Jersey, of the Paramus Mall, of the shirling coats you trod on during your visit, the ones you swore you would buy when you returned. Every time you tried something on, you made me take a picture, and those pictures, the memory of them, were what you focused on. This is how you made it, you told me, how you held it together. The niece in question must have really liked the rabble because she kept after her, the, she kept after her uncle until finally, miraculously, the colonel relented and you were free. Mommy brought you home in a taxi. You had hepatitis and a second asshole above your first from a polydenal cyst that stank worse than 10 assholes combined and whose horrible sinus leaked and leaked and leaked, but you were free. That's him. Thank you. That one's like a joy, yeah? I promise, two or three more rewrites, it'll be okay. You know? For real. So, uh, there's not really much space or anything for questions at all. Uh, but in case anyone actually did have a question and they wanted to scream it out while I prepare for the next reading bit, you can do so. It's a good question. It's a good question. Um, you know, it's one of those things where, of course, for some people, it's a strange thing. Yeah, they've had a myth about why they write. Sometimes the myth changes. Sometimes it's fixed. Yeah. I think the same way we have difficulty approaching art uh, in a sort of complete way. I mean, mar art is in many ways a great mystery. Yeah. There's no way that you can explicate a novel fully, and there's no way that you can explicate a poem fully. And therefore, often all we have is a cover story for why we pursue art. We have a really nice cover story. I grew up reading as a kid. I fell in love with these books. I feel like this is important because my community is not represented. I feel like I have to do all these things. But the truth of it is it's no more than a cover story. You have no access to your unconscious motivations that make this incredible labor possible. And so therefore you just come up with some neat little cute tales. And we're attracted to them, we're committed to them. We can't help it because we've got not much else, yeah? The truth of it is my cute little tale is I write for all the reasons I stated before. I love reading to death, yeah? For me, I would rather read than write any day. Yeah, I think of my identity as number one reader and then writer somewhere down to two, three, or four. And because of the enormous silence around the community in which I grew up, both inside the home country and in the diaspora, the sense that there is much work that needs to be done. Yeah. The sort of deep belief that I had from my own youthful experience that when I was growing up, there wasn't uh, anything in literature in this area that I loved so much. There was nothing in books that in some ways reflected me back. I couldn't read a poem. I couldn't read a story. I couldn't read a novel 
Yeah, I couldn't read a newspaper where I saw a Dominican kid reflected back in any way. Yeah. And so you know, you know, I've talked about this before, but you know for a fact that this idea that if you're a child and you grow up in a world without reflections, that, you know, you know what this means. You know that it's no accident that mythological monsters often have no reflections, yeah. It's not that monsters don't have reflections, but that if a human being grows up in a world where there are no reflections of them, they grow up to become monsters. They certainly have that possibility. And I felt that in a childhood where I never saw myself, that it was so painful in many ways, and it so distorts your sense of yourself, that the only thing I really wanted to do was that no matter what the fuck I could get done writing, um, that by the end of my career, I would have left one or two mirrors behind for some young kid out there who was sort of like me, who could look and at least say, you know, I don't see myself anywhere else in this world, but I see myself in this. And it's not a bad thing to leave mirrors. Most of us need more. And some of us belong to communities where we're otherwise erased. These are my sort of conscious explanations of why I write. The truth of it is the deep motivations elude me, and I've got to leave a space for them. Yeah, space for the fact that you don't ever really know why we do this. We have senses of it, but we don't really have access to that part of us. So that's that. Mm -hmm. Something else really quick. What are your favorite writers? You know, it's kind of nuts, right? I read, like, enormously. Yeah. I mean, motherfuckers read, but I fucking read, you know? (laughs) So, I mean, there's, like, a ton of them here. So you feel like you're, like, blowing them the fuck up. You're like, allow me to blow smoke up people's asses. (laughs) Yeah? So, um... You know, I think my colleague and dear friend, uh, Edwige Danteket, one of the greatest living writers, I think. um, I really think the writer who I've been forever talking about, but folks who've gotten the New Yorker recently, and this is the first time they encountered his power. Um, I think Francisco Goldman is probably one of America's greatest novelists and journalists. Uh, Chris Abani. Yeah, I've got my friend up front who had an enormous impact on my writing, uh, changed the way I viewed it, uh, David Mora, um, Christina Garcia, and then, of course, the Giants, who you probably have no, you just sort of pick their names, praying to God that they had some influence in you. So you're like Patrick Chamoiseau, of course, you know, early Oscar Iguelos, Pedro Mir, Juan Rufo. I mean, quoting Juan Rufo is sort of like being like, I hope, I hope God had an influence on me. You know? <laughs> but in the end, the problem with being a reader like most of you are is usually your favorite writers are on their way. Right? I mean, what makes reading so exciting is that you guys are out there and you're writing shit. And you're really excited as a reader that someone's going to come up with some shit that's going to be great and you can't wait for it. So I have all these people that I love and then, oh, you know the poet Gina Franco? Anybody ever read Gina Franco? 
Gina Franco's the shit, man. Fucking love Gina Franco. And uh, that poet Angela Shaw. You guys know Angela Shaw? Angela, I went to fucking Cornell at, with Angela, and Angela was like, was outwriting all of us even then. I was like this tiny, tiny little white girl, and it was like, she would write a poem, we were like, fuck. <laughs> so, yeah, she was brilliant. But, you know, the list could go on. You know, this could go on. Michael Martone, I, I'm so glad. Guys, I learned to write about New Jersey because of Michael Martone. I mean, the debt I owe to Michael Martone... Got to fucking roll like that dude a blunt every day. I owe him some shit. And I don't smoke, yo. Okay. So I'll just read something. Uh, this is something old, so fuck you. And uh, it's going to just be uh, very short, yeah? So and here you go. I don't know. Everything's been in second person lately. So it just seems to have infected me. And then I'll read this, and then if you guys have a few more questions, we're trying to fill it up to at least an hour, and then we'll call it a night, yeah? Come on, you guys know the deal. The shorter readings are, the better. It's like, I'll never forget when I was at Cornell, and motherfuckers would be like, I'm going to read seven, no, nine chapters from my novel. I'm like, the fuck is wrong with you, man? So... And people be saying fiction writers are fucked up, but I'm, I think that that's a badly earned rep. Fiction writers are just as likely as poets to bug the fuck out. Like, I have seen poets be reading 33 poems, so this idea that somehow we're more given to these, like, yeah, you know the deal. So it is a short piece called Alma, second person, it goes like this. You, Junior, have a girlfriend named Alma who has a long, tender horse neck and a big Dominican ass that seems to exist in a fourth dimension beyond jeans. <laughs> Fuck, man. Fuck! Really? You hear yourself and you're looking. You hear yourself and you're like, this is the real work. In that seems to exist in a fourth dimension beyond genes, an ass that could drag the moon out of orbit, an, an ass she never liked before she met you. Ain't a day that passes that you don't want to press your face against that ass or bite, or bite the delicate sliding tendons of her neck. You love how Alma shivers when you bite her, how she fights you with those arms that are so skinny they belong on an after-school special. <laughs> Alma, Alma is amazing, gross student, one of those sonic youth, comic book reading alternatinas without whom you might never have lost your virginity. She grew up in Hoboken, part of the Latino community that got its heart burnt out in the 80s, tenements turning to flame, she spent nearly every one of her teenage days on the Lower East Side, thought it would always be home. But then both NYU and Columbia rejected her, and she ended up farther from the city than before. Alma is in a painting phase, and the people she paints are all the color of mold. Look like they have been dredged up from the bottom of a lake. Her last painting was of you, Slouching against the front door, only you're frowning. I had a lousy third world childhood, and all I got was this shitty attitude <laughs> visible. 
Alma, the past couple of weeks, oh, she did give you one huge forearm, though. I told you, she said, I would get the muscles in. The past couple of weeks, now that the warm is here, Alma has abandoned the black and started wearing these nothing dresses made out, made out of what looks like tissue paper. Wouldn't take more than a strong wind to undress her. She says she does it for you. And when you see her on the street flaunting, flaunting, you know what every nigga that walks by is thinking because you are thinking it too. <laughs> Alma is slender as a reed. You are a steroid-addicted block. Alma loves driving. You love books. Alma owns a Saturn. You have no points on your license. Alma's nails are too dirty for cooking. Your spaghetti con pollo is the best in the land. You are so very different. She rolls her eyes every time you turn on the news, says she can't stand politics. She brags to her girls that you are a radical and a real Dominican, even though on the Platano Index you would not even rank. You brag to your boys that she has more albums than any of them do and that she says terrible white girl things while you fuck. Alma is more adventurous in bed than any girl you've been with. On her first date, on your first date, she asked you if you wanted to come on her face or her tits. And maybe during boy training, you did not get one of the memos because you were like, uh, neither. <laughs> yeah. It is an opposites attract sort of thing. It is a great sex sort of thing. It is a no-thinking sort of thing. It is wonderful, wonderful. Until one June day, Alma discovers that you are also fucking this freshman girl named Lakshmi. Discovers the fucking of Lakshmi because she, Alma, your girlfriend, opens your journal and reads. Alma waits for you on the front stoop, and when you pull up in her Saturn and notice your journal in her hand... Your heart plunges through you like a fat man through a hangman's trap. You take your time turning off the car. You are overwhelmed by a pelagic sadness, sadness at being caught, at the incontrovertible knowledge that Alma will never forgive you. You stare at her incredible legs, and between them to that even more incredible popola that you have loved so inconstantly these last two years. Only when Alma starts walking over in anger do you finally get out. You dance across the lawn, powered by the last fumes of your outrageous sinvergüenceria. Hey, muñeca, you say, prevaricating to the end. When Alma starts shrieking, you ask her, darling, whatever is the matter? <laughs> she calls you a cocksucker a punk motherfucker, and a fake-ass Dominican. She claims you have a little penis, that you have no penis, and worst of all, that you like curried pussy, which, which really is unfair, you try to explain, since Lakshmi is from Guyana, but, but Alma is not listening. Instead of lowering your head and copping to it like a man, 
You pick up the journal as one might hold a baby's beshattered diaper, as one might pinch a recently benutted condom. You glance at the offending pages, and then you look at her and smile a smile your dissembling face will remember for the rest of your life. Baby, you say, baby, this is part of my novel. And, and, and this is how you lose her. Thank you. Very kind. We got to bring it to 40 minutes, guys. You have five, six minutes, so scream something. Well, no, I'm actually very much interested in this. I think my obsession with Jersey has a lot to do with the artist, critic, Robert Smithson. His ideas, of course, of uh, elsewheres and somewheres. Um, If you've never read Smithson, you need to go and read Smithson. The uh, Monuments of Passaic County uh, is a very important essay. And, you know, Smithson has this idea that... um, places like New York, places like L.A., places like London, that these are somewheres. And that New Jersey is the quintessential classical elsewhere. That somewheres produce, rank, consume, purchase art. But that the greatest art is made in the elsewheres. And Jersey's interesting position is that Jersey is literally abutted against the greatest somewhere on the earth. And yet that proximity doesn't keep it from being the ultimate elsewhere in some ways. It's really like a fascinating thing, yeah? The idea that Jersey exists so that the rest of the United States doesn't have to know what New York thinks about it is really sort of, it's really kind of true. And I guess Jersey also functions as a metaphor for me because what... Santo Domingo is to the United States being only 66 miles from the United States... You would never know it. New Jersey is to New York City. I mean, I really did come to the Santo Domingo of America when we immigrated to New Jersey. It was like, and I just feel it works for me as a productive metaphor for these ideas of elsewheres and these ideas of margins. Yeah. One more. We're done. You're, a, uh, you're kind of like an artist with profanity. Mm-hmm. And I was just Well, but I think that this is a question of, I mean, there's a couple of things that have happened. Listen, this is a question, the idea of profanities and the idea of language, this is a question of the constant battle of the culture of respectability. You can't get ten motherfuckers together with a mic without the culture of respectability snapping over us like, you know, the sort of thermal inversion in Mexico City. It's like that strong. And the culture of respectability means that you will behave and act and say stuff that you never behave, act, and say that when you are hanging out with your friends. Yeah? And the truth of the matter is, is the culture of respectability is a way to silence all sorts of things. Not only just normal human interactions, the fact that people don't speak like Republican speeches. Yeah, but also that it introduces an element of silence anyway, because under the culture of respectability, you're not going to say, well, dad's out back raping all the slaves. 
Like, there's no room for all the real stuff that's going on in the universe, in the culture of respectability. Culture of respectability is a wonderful way to obscure the vast, violent privilege of people who have it. Now, that doesn't mean that, the, that one, of course, shouldn't have a number of masks. You're all, we're all adults. We know that you don't sound the same when you're talking to your best friend the way you sound like when you're talking to your boss. Yeah, I always say my fucking friends sound mad white when they're on the phone with their boss. You know, and that's a given. We have numbers of faces. I'm here trying to talk to you guys about art. You know, guys, there's nothing more difficult than this. Trying to communicate the strange thing that brings us all together, but which we all are still wrestling with. Look, it's hard enough to talk about art when you're being sincere and you're coming from at least your heart, you think or some acre nearby your heart, the difficulties that you will incur when you're trying to talk about art through a mask of respectability, I just think are just not worth the price. I would rather people think that, you know, oh, this dude just curses, it's just a performance, it's this, it's that. Um, it's, you know, some sort of like cool thing, etc. I would rather people just dismiss me that way than me run the chance of missing the one connection I could make with somebody about art simply because I'm speaking in the most, for me, authentic way I can possibly speak when you're in front of 300 people, you know? And I just think that it's, look, guys, this is a tough one as it is. All of us wear 30 or 40 masks that we sort of put on and take off, but when it comes to talking about art and dealing with art, it's far better to take them off. For me, the experience of being a grad student in an MFA is that it's often so hard to talk and to hear because all the masks that you're wearing of being cool, of wanting to be the future great writer, of trying to get everybody to love you, of like all that shit just interrupts the ability to truly speak about the shit we want to speak about. You know, and it's like I taught MFAs for a long time. I recently taught a semester, and I realized it takes a long time for me to get my students to the point where they're, like, actually fucking talking. You know, where some of that stuff that we carry, the masks, just drop, and you begin to hear each other, not just you hear a bunch of muffled stuff. Yeah. So I think that's it. All right? Guys, you have been very, very kind. Thank you so much. tuning into the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please tune into our website at www.awpwriter.org.